The, uh, the first sentence of a book, I think, can grab you by the throat if the author gets it right. I, I don't know if you've that, had that experience. I certainly have. And uh, a book I was reading in recently, Pat Conroy's epic novel, The Prince of Tides, did that for me. You may have even seen, seen the film. For that book begins with a sentence that leapt right out of the pages of, of the text at me, and it was this. I've never forgotten it, sort of appropriate in a way on account of uh, the job I have. My wound is geography. My wound is geography. Now, the, the book is actually the story of the Wingo family from Colleton County in South Carolina. Colleton County, that's the place. That's the geography he's referring to. Among the marshes and the shrimp boats, the brown flats and the blazing summer heat, there, Tom Wingo and his sister Savannah passed their childhood days on one of those sea islands that dot the Atlantic fringe of the Carolinas. That was the place, and that was the wound. My wound is geography. A single terrifying event that happened there so many years before. One horrendous night of shattering violence in that place wounded the Wingo children for life. It produced a, a lifetime of self-loathing in, in Tom and decades of suicidal despair in his sister Savannah. The memory of that place remained a festering wound, a gaping sore, one that just did not heal over. Now yet for all that, the second sentence is remarkable in this book as well, because it tells us of that irresistible magnetic force, as powerful as gravity, that draws Tom back again and again to Colleton County. My wound is geography, yes, but he goes on. It is also my anchorage, my port of call. It is also my anchorage, my port of call. You see, Colleton County wounds him, but anchors him at the same time. It's his port of call, it's his mooring, it's his mainstay, it's his place, it's where he's rooted. In some strange and profound way, Whatever damage he had sustained, whatever the wounds that scarred his soul, whatever the trauma that disturbed his equilibrium, that same place was at the very heart of who Tom Wingo was. It was at the heart of his identity. I wonder if there are some places that are like that for you. A place that's associated with pain or grief or heartache. And every time you think of it, the memory comes flooding back. I know there is for me. And yet, in some really strange way, that same place is central to your identity. It's part and parcel of the very fabric of who you were and are and of who you have become. For good or for ill, it's made you the kind of person that you are. You know, I, I, think, I think it's the same myself for societies and for nations. 
Uh, in the Old Testament, for example, God never allowed the children of Israel to forget the atrocities that had literally taken place in various locations. Uh, the town of Gibeah, for instance, was the site of a horrendous gang rape, and it's recounted for us in Judges 19. That place came to stand as a symbol for profound corruption in Israel, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Hosea, for example, announces that the people of his day, and I quote Hosea, have corrupted themselves as they did in the days of Gibeah. Therefore, he will remember their iniquity. And I think it's just not true for the, for the biblical, uh, for biblical times. It's true in our own day too. There are places whose very names conjure up memories of atrocities or tragedies or anguish or one sort or another. Auschwitz, Darkly, Hiroshima, Dunblane, Abu Ghraib. They're all places of wounds. Indeed, indeed, I think the very names come to stand for the dark and disturbing side of human nature. They become symbols of a soiled and a stained humanity. They're names that remind us of our frailty and of our fallenness. But at the same time, they're fundamental to taking seriously the kind of species that we human beings are and of the sickening depths to which we can all descend. Now, wounds, of course, can be physical, registered in our bodies or imprinted on our flesh. A lot of war wounds are like that, I suspect, or or scars from some other act of violence, or the lingering marks from a crash or an accident or an illness. But, of course, they can also be psychological and emotional. There are wounds of the spirit as well as wounds of the flesh. And of course they can come from many, many different quarters. They can be inflicted by an enemy, by a chance event, maybe by a debilitating disease. And you know they can even be caused by friends. Recall a comment from Proverbs, better are the wounds of a friend than the deceitful kisses of an enemy. Now whatever their origin, I've got the suspicion that we are more profoundly shaped by our pains than by our pleasures. I think it was C.S. Lewis who once said this, God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pains. You know, in, in the last analysis, I think we find out more about ourselves when we face distress than when we experience delight. Heartache shapes us much more profoundly than hilarity. And so in in an age of amusement and entertainment, one that we're obsessed with, I suppose, I thought this morning that a few preliminary thoughts on what I'm going to call the place of wounds might might be timely. I hope you agree. Timbuktu. The year's 1820, and the very name Timbuktu conjures up images then, as I suspect it does now, of of an exotic place, distant and dangerous, risky, but also romantic. Myths and tales about Timbuktu abound, and the race is on in 1820 to be the first European to set foot in that African city. 
Who should the honor go to? Should it go to a young Frenchman called René Caillé? Or should it go to a Scottish soldier, Alexander Gordon Lang? I really was tempted to say Alexander Gordon Lang, but you know what I mean. In making the case for his priority, Mr. Lang reported how he had acquired genuine knowledge of the place. He told how he really should be believed. Why? It cost him dearly. And he explained why his testimony should be believed in agonizing, in literally painstaking detail. He told of the 24 wounds he had sustained in his clashes with Tuareg brigands. Multiple saber slashes to the head, to the left temple, to the right arm, a variety of fractures, a musket ball in the hip, and on and on. An inventory of wounds. But, but his argument was simple. His wounds were painfully, his words were painfully imprinted upon his body. What he said was reliable because his body showed the signs. His wounds took pride of place in his testimony because they provided warrant for his claims. I think for many people it's something similar. The wounds that some people bear of body, of mind, and of soul are the authenticating marks of the experiences that they have been through. And when those people share their experience with us, Their words carry astonishing conviction. It's precisely because they are wounded. It's precisely because they have been through the mill, through the pain, through the hard times. It's for those reasons that they genuinely have something to say that's worth listening to. Their wounds bless us. They inspire us. They give us hope. They speak the language of understanding. They speak of endurance, of patience, of fortitude. They speak of the virtue of just hanging in there. Shakespeare famously put it this way. How poor are they that have no patience? What wound did ever heal but by degrees? What wound did ever heal but by degrees? You know, I think it's hard to be a skeptic in the face of the evidence of wounds. St. Thomas found that out for sure, as Sue read for us this morning. It was when he saw with his own eyes the wounds in the hands and the side of the resurrected Christ that his doubts at last melted away. These wounds were confirmation that this Christ was solid, was real, was embodied. His presence was no make-believe. It was no mirage. It was no trick of the imagination. It was real. It was material. It was substantial. The wounds were the insignia of his real presence. They were evidence that the resurrection was not, as, as John Updike so wonderfully expressed it in his astonishing poem on Easter Day, this resurrection was not, as Updike says, mere metaphor. The wounds weren't a sign painted in the fainted credulity of earlier ages. This was a real resurrection. Just listen to Updike. It was not as the flowers 
each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The stone is rolled back. Not papier-mâché, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. You see, touching those wounds, rubbing his finger across the scar tissue, Tracing the contour of the cavities left by spike and spear in an instant convinced Thomas that all this and more was true. Those wounds provided warrant. Now I think another theme that snakes its way through the scriptures, of course, is human frailty. The sense that we are all just like sagebrush quickly swept away in the breeze. Peter puts it this way. Human beings are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fail. Now, now if you're like me, you probably spend most of your life trying to suppress that thought, trying to do everything you can to keep it at the subliminal edges of your consciousness. Don't you do that? The idea that we're frail, that we're feeble, that we're liable to crumble, it doesn't go down well on television adverts. Whether it's shampoo or sun cream or toothpaste, they always seem to be used by the beautiful people with unbelievably silken hair, perfectly tanned bodies, and impossibly shiny white teeth. And if something of human frailty does sometimes sneak through onto the small screen, Well, of course, it can be instantly whisked away by the right indigestion pills or anti-wrinkle cream. I can tell you about the indigestion pills, so maybe Francis can tell... No, no, don't go there, don't go there. But it's not on TV adverts that we encounter humanity in the raw. That's That's not where what one thinker has recently called bare life... They don't appear on the TV adverts. That's not where we see into the deep recesses of the human condition. I've been helped in this whole matter by by reading an American writer, Virginia Stem Owens. Virginia is a college teacher and now retired and a freelance author. But she's also spent a good deal of time volunteering as an assistant ward orderly in a veteran's hospital, doing odds and ends of jobs some of them not entirely pleasant, and most of them much too aromatic. Here she reminds us human flesh is monstrous. 
Sure, sure, the body's a miracle. When we see on our television screens the labyrinthine complexity of the network, the capillary network of our blood vessels, or the shower of electricity that is our uh, nervous system, or the color-coded contour map of the brain's connections, wow, it's truly marvelous, it's stunning. But among Vietnam amputees and hemorrhaged brain victims, it's different. It's broken, mutilated, disfigured, wounded. That's human flesh too. Now concentrating like this on wounded humanity can be pretty depressing. And we all want to blank out every reminder of our own mortality. And of course I think it's true that we can become pathologically fixated on our own weaknesses and wounds. And when that happens we can become enslaved by the frailty of ourselves, our minds and spirits. But surely we can be liberated by this thought as well. We are all wounded. Woundedness is at the very heart of the human condition. We all of us are bruised in some way, maybe even battered. All of us are dented and damaged, spoiled and scratched. And just realizing human frailty, realizing that it's universal, can surely help us to accept what we are. It's our woundedness that puts us all on one level. And that can put a stop to our irrepressible inclination to always try to look good, to always self-promote, to put on a show of success, to strut or to grandstand. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but our word hypocrite comes from a Greek root word meaning a stage actor. That's exactly what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is a person who's acting out a role, pretending to be something that they're not, doing a PR job on the rest of us. But, but here's the thing. I think it's possible to be both the actor and the audience at the same time. It's perfectly possible to be acting to ourselves. It's perfectly possible to do a PR job on yourself and you come to believe it. But when we're stricken down, I think all that goes. When we're injured in body and mind and spirit, we know that we're really like everybody else. When we're wounded, we see the complete futility of play acting. When we come to see that, when we arrive at that destination, when we touch down at that place, a wound is beginning to transform into a blessing. It's becoming a vehicle for new possibilities. Well, I was quoting a minute or two ago from Virginia Stem Owens on monstrous human flesh. But the point of her portrayal of broken humanity was not just to highlight our infirmity. That's easy enough to do. It was to point away from ourselves to something else, to the Incarnation. It was to point to the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to how she goes on. Very appropriate in the light of this past two weeks and what Philip was saying at the beginning. Flesh is not just the Olympic champions. Flesh is also the source of Lazarus, the man with a withered arm, 
the woman with the issue of blood. Fragile. Vulnerable. If the body of Christ had not partaken of that same frailty, if his flesh was only an illusion, if he'd been superman instead of suffering servant, able to leap tall buildings as Satan suggested, we might as well have stuck with Hercules. Christ's body was not made up of magic molecules impervious to pain. No, it was broken. You get the point. When God comes to earth, he loves humanity so much that he undergoes a blood-stained, stable birth which foreshadows a blood-soaked public death. His flesh was real. It wasn't make-believe. It endured pain. It endured hunger, fatigue. It endured death. It was wounded flesh. But, you know, I think we can maybe take this one step further. It's not just that Jesus so identifies with us that he takes on a wounded body. He does that. But also it's this, that in some profoundly deep and mysterious way, it's through his wounds that ours are healed. So you read that passage from Isaiah. Brokenness is at the very heart of our existence. And equally, it's at the very heart of the Christian mystery of the Incarnation. I think in some really strange way, our woundedness and the woundedness of Christ belong together. It's not the sure shot shot confidence of the business tycoon. It's not the brash self-importance of the executive. It's not the thrusting self-assurance of the professional interviewee. That's not where humanity and divinity cross paths. That's not the place where heaven and earth are sewn together. No, when God and humanity truly come together, it's in a broken body, a wounded body, that of Christ who came to heal the brokenhearted and to bind up our wounds. Heaven and earth meet at the place of wounds. That's the crossroads. That's the intersection. That's the junction where God's grace and human need converge. People who are not wounded have no need of a physician. You see, it's when you are at your most vulnerable, when I'm at my weakest, that's when we're closest to the incarnate Christ, not when we're at our strongest. So if you and I can perhaps come to see our wounds as shadows, echoes, whisperings of Christ's incarnation. Maybe, maybe, we'll just find new resources to live with those frailties and maybe better come to terms with them. Well, I'm nearly done. But just a final thought. Maybe these thoughts have left you cold this morning. Maybe you've no heart for worship today. Maybe you're wondering how long more is this guy going on. Maybe a sadness clutches you. Maybe you're gripped by fears and anxieties. Maybe you feel an overwhelming sense of darkness, alienation, maybe even despair. Maybe you're already so wounded this morning that your mind's somewhere else, that you can't engage. Maybe you're so battered that you can't begin to grasp what I've tried to say. Maybe what you feel this morning is not hope but defeat. 
Maybe not God's presence, but his absence. Maybe you experience loss, not gain. You're crushed rather than inspired. Let me finish with a story that I've told before here in Fitzroy. I hope you think it will bear repeating. Every time he goes on stage with braces on both legs and two crutches, he takes his seat and unhinges the clasps at the back of his knees. A victim of polio since the age of four, it's the virtuoso Israeli violinist Itzhak Perlman, soloist, conductor, and recipient of 15 Grammy Awards. You'll have heard him play if you've seen Steven Spielberg's film, Schindler's List. I was hoping to let you hear that this morning. I don't think that's going to be possible. Well, there's a story that one evening during a performance at the Lincoln Center in New York City, one of the strings on his violin snapped. But rather than strapping on the braces and stopping, fumbling for the crutches, and shuffling off stage to restring, he played on with just three strings. It's an amazing performance, modulating, rearranging, recomposing the music in his head as he went along. The audience was stunned into silence and then burst rapturously into applause. Later, when he was asked about this experience, Itzhak Perlman is reported to have replied this. It is our task to make music with whatever remains. Exactly what happened that night is, is a bit uncertain. Maybe it's an urban legend. I don't know. But what a sentiment all the same. It is our task to make music with whatever remains. It certainly moved the rabbi Harold Schulweis to compose a poem entitled Playing with Three Strings. If you're feeling forlorn and isolated this morning and battered and bruised and wounded, if you're feeling broken and bruised in every way, if you feel you're playing the melody of life with only three strings, listen to this last stanza from Rabbi Schulweis. I hope you'll find it inspiring. It goes like this. A legacy mightier than a concert. Make music with what remains. Complete the song left for us to sing. Transcend the loss. Play it out with heart, soul, and might. With all remaining strength within us. Amen.